Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be looking at recent developments in the world of science and technology. And also joining us is Professor Michael Hoffman to tell us a little bit about water remediation. Also, find out why giraffes have such long necks. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Kirky. How was everyone's Thanksgiving? Well, it was uh, reasonable. How was uh, yours? Yeah, I was completely stuffed. I, I don't know what I ate, but it was just stuffing. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> oh, you're so clever with the wit, my friends. I think I fell asleep after all the L-tryptophan in the turkey, but... Uh, L-tryptophan? Yeah. Or the... but here's a chemical for you. Nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Fentanyl. Fentanyl. Oh, fentanyl. Yes, it's an opiate, apparently. Uh-huh. And I've been identified as the agent that the Russians used to uh, to knock out those hostages. Remember the uh, that right, situation we had right. a couple months ago? Unfortunately, uh, this stuff also kills people. Ah, uh, well, apparently. So, what, uh, obviously it did that, but uh, why does it do that? It's a fast-acting, fast-acting inhalable narcotic. Uh, it's supposed to just inst- induce sleep, maybe cause some nausea, but if it's too high in concentration, it also stops the respiration. I see. I see. So, but they had never tried this uh, drug before. No. The thing is, they didn't want to reveal they were using it because of, you know, implications from the chemical weapons mm-hmm. convention. Uh, but it was identified because they, uh, some other medical specialists found out that the, uh, the agent counteracting it was naloxone, which is, um, which would imply the use of opiates. So uh, I'd actually read that they tried to place the antidote in the food that they delivered uh, to the hostages beforehand. I, I was not aware of that. Yeah, but apparently the, the captors wouldn't let the uh, hostages eat. Too bad. Yeah. The other reason why uh, the Russians were so reluctant to, to reveal this compound was the fact that they were afraid that terrorists would get their hands on it and uh, use it on them instead. Mm. So I guess if anyone wants to know more, uh, they can read the uh, November 4th issue of Chemical and Engineering News. All right, so what do you guys think of supernovas? Supernova, they're super duper, I think. Super duper exciting. They're explosive. They are indeed explosive. You're talking about cars, right? Those uh, supernovas. <laughs> yeah, the really, really good version of right. the nova. Right. The nova, yeah. the nova was never super in any any possible universe. It whatsoever. doesn't go, you know. <laughs> no. Uh-huh. It is neither super nor nova. Yes, nova. Okay, so anyway, uh, apparently supernovas come in two flavors, as 
scientists have classified like them, call them type Bitter one and, and type two, right? right? Yes, type one or type two. And in fact, they're classified, I guess, as type one A, one B, one C, etc. But uh, apparently, they're classified in this way based on uh, the way in which they were formed. So they're formed. Yes. So apparently, in terms of uh, type one A explosions, are or supernovas are caused by thermonuclear explosions of white dwarfs, dwarfs, whereas the uh, type 1b, 1c, and 2 are produced by core collapses in massive stars. So different types of uh, systems that can create these two different types of supernovas. A recent uh, supernova, uh, so-called supernova 1991d, uh, apparently has spectral characteristics of both the type 1a and the 1b and 1c. Hmm. So this recent observation by uh, Benedetti, Benetti and others uh, has postulated that perhaps this was a binary system consisting of a white dwarf and a low-mass helium star, and that it was possible that the white dwarf exploded within the helium envelope of the companion. And mm-hmm. this combination of two things created right. this mixed signal that people are seeing from this particular supernova. So it's not quite a third type of supernova yet? No, uh, at least that's not what they're proposing, but uh, it was it was apparently quite a bit of a puzzle why the spectra were not consistent with either type 1 or type other type 2 type supernovas. Right. So uh, this could certainly explain it, but um, if these kind of peculiar supernovas exist, they could compl- apparently complicate the estimates of uh, uh, the types of uh, supernova that form and how they form. Yeah, these are, I mean, these are supposed to be very fairly well understood systems, is, right. is my understanding in astrophysics. So it's an interesting thing to see that. But right. uh, so you come up with an explanation, and yeah, then if we or see a lot of them, then that's a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. And you have to come up with a better explanation. But uh, certainly very peculiar. Uh, anyone who wants to uh, look at this can can go to the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, Volume 336, page 91. Isn't that next to the uh, Ladies' Home Journal? I, I believe it, you find it on the shelves all yes, the time. At, at the newsstand by your supermarket checkout counter. All right. So we can all feel a little bit safer this week now that we've found out that it's slightly less likely that an asteroid will kill us all. Oh, slightly less cool. likely, at least in our own lifetimes. I didn't know it was likely at all. We yeah. want missiles to blast them away now? There's always some likelihood of being hit by a, by a <laughs> giant uh, meteor crashing into the Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, the I, thing I, that I usually plan my day around the it. The thing so. that we think killed the dinosaurs and so on, right? But yeah. um, as it turns out, uh, some data from U.S. government satellites has been analyzed by Peter Brown of the University of Western Ontario. These satellites were actually looking for uh, nuclear testing around the world, mm-hmm. uh, and they also just sort of serendipitously saw... Um, flashes of light from giant meteors crashing into the Earth's atmosphere, um, which wow. suggests that just the uh, the number of these asteroids crashing into the as- atmosphere per year suggests that very large, very damaging events only happen about once every 1,000 years or so, which is about uh, a third as often as people thought previously. Mm-hmm. So okay. it was said by uh, Robert Jedeke in Nature that we can all worry a little less. For those of you who are uh, walking around with um, you know, giant steel umbrellas. Don't worry. Yeah, a little less likely. All right. Well, so, so uh, if you yeah. want to read that study, uh, they can look in the latest uh, edition of Nature.
So anyone really like moldy bread? Moldy bread? Is that with uh, penicillin, I believe? I only buy moldy bread. <laughs> I go to the store and root through the dumpster out back to find all the moldy bread. It's so good. <laughs> you you got to have the taste for it, you know? <laughs> what about the slime molds? I like those. Well, uh, except for the fact that they're slimy, I, I like them. And I like mold. to call it blue bread. Uh-huh. I like blue cheese. You all have very fine taste. But, you know, before that mold becomes moldy, it exists microscopically as a non-moldy kind of looking thing. What, like a rock? Well, it's, it's, well, it's a form of the organism called a hyphae. A hyphae. Hyphae. And when it uh, reaches the uh, surface of the food, it begins to change into uh, the sort of conidia form. And mm. that is actually what looks like the... Uh, typical moldy appearance that you see. Mm-hmm. So what people have shown now is that high concentrations of calcium uh, have apparently been shown to trigger a sequence of synchronous events that lead to the appearance of this, this conidia form. Now recent work by this fellow Ronkel and others have observed that the penicillium uh, cyclopium, penicillium cyclopium secretes a diterpene molecule they call the conidogenone. Mm-hmm. And this apparently accumulates on the surface of the mold and when this reaches a critical concentration, it apparently initiates the formation of the moldy conidia form. So it's, it's kind of a neat little switch that exists. Uh, the calcium basically builds up, and you get mold. Cool. And if anyone wants to know more about this? Oh, they can look in the ever-popular journal Eukaryotic Cell. I'm sure they all have it on the table. Volume 1, A23. We've got to hear it for those prokaryotes, though, one of these days. The prokaryotes know it all, except for the fact that they don't have a nucleus, but... Get ahead, man. So, guys, uh, have you had any warts lately? Wars? Warts. 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 Uh, yeah, but you don't want to see them, Frank. Yeah. Uh, okay. I guess I don't want to ask them. And by that, I mean they're in yeah. my ear. Oh, okay. okay. To the new journal, I came across the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. Oh, I, I've read that one. You do? No. So, uh, they did a study on using duct tape to get rid of warts. Okay. So, this doctor, physician Dean Folkt, number three, of Madigan Army Medical Center, did a study where they took a group of children with, you know, ordinary wart, and they did one one group with uh, cryotherapy, the other with duct tape. Okay. And, well, the children like the duct tape more because, uh, you know, kids usually don't like have having liquid nitrogen spilled on their skin. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Hot wax, though, that's always fun. Yeah. It turns out the people who use the duct tape recovered a little faster, and 85% of them did not have their warts returned, whereas 65% of the, uh, the ones with cryotherapy had only fully recovered. I see. So how exactly does this work? Do they just stick it on there and just kind of rip it off really fast, or what? Oh, no, they, uh, I guess they have to stick it on for some duration, maybe a, a couple of days. I'm not sure. That tape has wart remover in it? No, it's just tape. And it's just some adhesive, basically. And it just bonds or something after it's sitting on there for like a day? I, I guess so. I don't know. Wow. Okay. Oh, more evidence that duct tape can do anything. <laughs> it's, it's the uh, wonder cure-all. MacGyver had it going, I think. Oh, Lord. So go out and buy some duct tape and... Uh, mm-hmm. Your warts. Yeah. Does it work? Does it work for uh, bikini wax also? I'd hate to find out. And that's all for this week's look at current events in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM. Well, coming up, Professor Michael Hoffman will be joining us to tell us about advanced methods for remediating the environment. So stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, as you remember, some scientists reported a few months ago that cold fusion could be carried out by the cavitation bubbles created by ultrasonic radiation. Unfortunately, repeated experiments have failed to give encouraging results. So while the bubble for cold fusion may have collapsed, ultrasound has proved its soundness for helping out the environment. Joining us today is Professor Michael Hoffman from the California Institute of Technology, and he's going to tell us how ultrasound and other technologies are being used to treat wastewater. Professor Hoffman, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Well, could you tell us some of this technology, the uh, the so-called advanced oxidation technologies that you're using right now? <clears throat> We've investigated a, a number of uh, advanced uh, technologies for a destruction of chemical contaminants uh, in water, and they generally fall under the category of uh, advanced oxidation or reduction uh, technologies. And uh, we've been uh, exploring uh, semiconductor photocatalysis uh, on simple metal oxide semiconductors such as titanium dioxide. We've been uh, looking at uh, electrochemical oxidation methods using semiconductor electrodes also based on titanium dioxide. We've been exploring uh, pulse power plasma discharges directly into water. Uh, and then finally, we've been looking uh, at the application of ultrasonic energy to induced uh, hydrodynamic cavitation, which results uh, in the destruction of chemical compounds in water. So when you talk about destruction, are you talking about like <clears throat> pyrolysis or uh, some other uh, intermediate um intermediate radicals reacting with these compounds? Well, our goal uh, is, in the, in the sense of uh, destruction, is to totally convert, uh, let's say, organic chemical contaminants into carbon dioxide and water. Uh, that's the ultimate goal or the, the holy grail in this case. And in the case of uh, hydrodynamic cavitation as uh, induced by ultrasound or what we call acoustic cavitation, uh, we generate unusually high uh, temperatures and pressures within a bubble that lead uh, to uh, pyrolytic reactions within the vapor phase of a collapsing cavitation bubble. So we can pyrolytically break down molecules as one would in high temperature combustion, uh, but then also we have uh, secondary radicals that attack uh, organic molecules and break them down and eventually convert them to CO2 and water. So these cavitation bubbles, I, I presume they're not hot enough for the nuclear fusion that some people have claimed, is that right? Definitely not uh, in uh, a multi-bubble uh, water system. Uh, there may be some isolated cases in a non-organic or non-water-based uh, solvent system uh, for perhaps single-bubble uh, cavitational collapse where much higher temperatures can be maintained. It's our feeling that the sort of the maximum temperatures in a collapsing water bubble are uh, definitely less than uh, 10,000 degrees centigrade, more mm -hmm. likely around three to 4,000 degrees centigrade. Yeah, I believe uh, there was a study that came out from the uh, Celsius group that claimed that it was around a few thousand degrees rather than 10,000. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Do you believe uh, this technology is actually viable in the, in the real world, or is it just uh, a model in the lab right now? <coughs> I think there are a number of uh, companies that are exploring the uh, technology. Uh, it's not highly energy efficient uh, at mm -hmm. this point in time. In other words, the amount of chemical transformation that you get per unit of energy put in is not very high. It's 
a relatively low efficiency process from an energy standpoint, about 1% hmm. uh, or less energy efficient. Uh, but it is very convenient. It's a very simplistic system. Uh, one doesn't need the addition of uh, chemical reagents or uh, other chemical reagents to uh, ensure that oxidation or reduction takes place. You can simultaneously destroy chemical compounds and kill bacteria and viruses in water. So it, it not only uh, cleans up the water, but it also disinfects the water with respect to right. microorganisms. And so I see applications, uh, selected applications, where uh, water may not be very pure, but there's a relatively cheap energy source, uh, perhaps in rural regions of China where uh, energy is abundant, but uh, clean water is not. Mm -hmm. Is this more efficient than just boiling the water? Yeah, it may not uh, be more efficient than boiling, but boiling is not going to destroy the chemical compounds. Boiling would certainly... Uh, kill bacteria and viruses if it's boiled long enough, but you're not going to uh, destroy the lower volatility, higher molecular weight organic contaminants that may be present. Whereas ultras- application of ultrasound at lower temperatures will do that. It'll kill both the bacteria, uh, but also also destroy the chemical compounds. Mm-hmm. How about um, uh, ultraviolet radiation, since uh, a lot of these compounds tend to absorb it in that region? Uh, yeah, ultraviolet radiation uh, is is suitable, but but generally one has to go to wavelengths well below 300 nanometers. Right. And then uh, the energy costs uh, are uh, quite high. In fact, uh, on average, ultrasound is more energy efficient than ultraviolet radiation, around 250 more, 254 nanometers with a mercury vapor lamp, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which would be a, a, a typical ultraviolet uh, energy source. I see. Uh, for uh, water treatment. And uh, then also the UV light can't penetrate very far into water, whereas with the proper acoustic cavitation system, one can have a uniform distribution of uh, uh, cavitation bubbles throughout the fluid. Mm-hmm. So talking about the, um, the photocallus, I understand there are some examples which are already in the market. Uh, could you describe some of them? Well, there are a number uh, of applications of semiconductor photocatalysis uh, to uh, clean surfaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Japanese automobiles have thin coatings of uh, colloidal titanium dioxide on uh, mirrors, external mirrors on uh, on the car, and the idea is to clean off any films uh, that may deposit. Likewise, on the windshield, windshields of automobiles uh, are often coated with titanium dioxide. Uh, where uh, organic chemical contaminants uh, deposit, and then they're basically destroyed by the action of, of sunlight with the uh, semiconductor. So you you put a thin, transparent coating of colloidal titanium dioxide onto these surfaces. Mm-hmm. There are a number of uh, self-cleaning air filtration systems dependent on titanium dioxide photocatalysis, and then also water treatment systems based on titanium dioxide photocatalysis. Um, many of these are are commercial or near uh, commercial level at this point in time. I see. So for these catalysts, do they require water even for the, uh, the air-based ones? Well, there's a certain uh, relative humidity that's necessary. Um, mm-hmm. One has to hydrate the titanium dioxide surface uh, to form surface hydroxy functionalities, and that requires a certain relative humidity. So if you go to extremely dry systems, 
the photocatalytic activity drops off quite dramatically. Okay, well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time, so uh, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Okay, great. Talk to you later. And we just talked to Michael Hoffman, Professor of Environmental Sciences at Caltech on Advanced Technologies for Environmental Remediation. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out why a giraffe's neck is so long. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Barkley Rocks. When I come to America, I realize Americans are so large. Look at those NBA players. They are so large and they are so tall. But then one day I saw the giraffe. And giraffe have such long neck and they are even taller. And I wonder why the giraffe have such long neck. Ah, well today, everyday science lady, please explain. Ever wonder why giraffes have such long necks? The answer can be found in everyday science. The giraffe is the tallest animal in the world. Mostly because over centuries of evolution and survival, the giraffe developed a very long neck. To see why that neck is so important, let's become a giraffe. Living on the African savanna. We're a male giraffe, and a large one. In fact, we measure 18 feet from head to toe. Our legs take up six feet of our height, but our neck takes up eight. It's our favorite time of year on the savanna. The rains have come. The African plain is fertile and flourishing. And for now, there's plenty of grass, leaves, and bushes for the 40 different species of grazing animals, including ourselves, to munch on. But that's just for now. Before too long, the rains stop, and a drought begins. Many of the grasses wither and die, the bushes and trees too, and food becomes scarce for grazing animals like ourselves. To survive, we follow nature's and our body's design. Smaller gazelles eat what short grass and seeds they can find. The wildebeests and zebras eat the taller grasses and plants, and we giraffes feed on the leaves and twigs at the tops of the trees. Because thanks to our long necks and legs, we're the only animals that can reach them. So you see, by working with what Mother Nature gave us, we're able to survive. Thanks for sticking your neck out and for being a part of everyday science. Mm-hmm. 
everyday science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. So you think that lady has a long neck? There are many parts of my anatomy that I would like to have enlarged, and my neck was never really top on the line. But mm-hmm. Keep it up, I guess. Anyway, yeah. I'd certainly stick my neck out for an everyday science lady if I needed to. She's done it for us so far, right? Uh, I think missing in that whole picture was, what do the humans do? I guess they just go to McDonald's or something. <laughs> now they eat the giraffes. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, giraffe burgers, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, now here's the quotable fact of the week. The, the what? <laughs> the quotable fact of the week. Oh, so the quotable fact. I couldn't fa- find a quote. Oh, so there's no quote. It's the quotable fact of the week. Go yes. Ahead. And it's simply, uh, carbon monoxide kills a thousand Americans annually. All right. <laughs> now we know. Well, now it's the crazy Scotsman again with the answer to last week's question of the week. So how does your freight ripen, lad? Well, it's the fruit that evades this tiny little gas called ethylene. And the ethylene appears to, like, interact with the other fruits, which causes them to emerge and ripen some more, which then emits more ethylene. And ripen and ripen and ripen, and that's how your fruit ripens. Ethylene! Damn hormone. And this week's question of the week, why don't oil and water mix... If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. You might not win anything, but you'll be a little bit slicker. And finally, before we sign off, here is a quick public service announcement. Remember, Berkeley Groks is a public affairs show, and this announcement comes from Explore Vision to all those science educators out there. Explore Vision is a competition for students of all interests, skill, and ability levels in grades K through 12. Entrants must be from the United States, Canada, or legal residents within. The purpose of the competition is to encourage students to combine their imaginations with the tool of science to create and explore a vision of the future technology. To prepare an entry, students will work in a group of two, three, or four and take an existing technology and see how it evolve 20 years from now. To submit their... Um, project, they must present a written description as well as five graphics simulating web pages. And to find more about this, you can go to the website www.toshiba.com backslash TIA backslash ExploreVision, or you can also call their toll-free number at 1-800-EXPLORE-9. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you turn in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Brian Gerke. Stay tuned for more music with your host, The Boy Wonder.